Simpleton Podcast, the most popular podcast in eternity, featuring Laura Heeman. Hey, Clark. <laughs> Guest starring Clark Massey. Hello, everybody. All right. We're the most popular podcast that you listen to that is uh, as a banjo music introduction. We have stuff to talk about today. We're going to talk about a couple consequences of Roe v. Wade that we don't hear anyone talk about. We're going to talk about, we're going to transition to that to prison Islam and beauty. Uh, and then we're going to go from that to kind of our main topic, which will be a little bit of a change in speed. We're going to talk a little bit historically about Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. We're going to talk about like us being in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. what we saw as the problem with violence and police and things like that, what we were being told before the Black Lives Matter people ever came on the scene, you know? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk about our reaction to that. And um, we're going to talk about critical race theory and come down, not into every little particular of it, but the couple main themes that um, Christians need to be knowledgeable about. And I think it's going to be simple, and I think it's going to be, I think it's a very informative way of viewing the subject. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Laura? Yeah, I agree. It's going to be simple. I think it's going to kind of be the key to all the different tenets that people would say are part of like critical race theory, you know? Right. We're going to say at, you know, in the main, you know, we're going to try to hit it at its heart. Yeah. Um, Roe v. Wade, a couple ideas have come about that I'm not hearing other people talk about that I think are interesting. One just happened to my wife and I, we had a child and it was a high risk pregnancy. And so we went to a special a group that was um, kind of a high-risk pregnancy OBGYN group, right, at a hospital in our area. And there were like eight doctors in the group. This summer, that group lost four doctors. All at the same time? Within Just about, months. Yeah. Right. To the point they're bringing in surgeons from other disciplines to do C-sections. Wow. Because they have too much work and they just lost half their staff. Wow. You know? That's just interesting. It's not like they're saying, oh, hey, you know, four doctors quit in protest due to the Missouri becoming a pro-life state, but there's probably a lot of abortions in high-risk pregnancy situations. Yeah. yeah. And what I think is the most probable thing that's happening is that these people are abortionists and that they left when this ruling changed, you mm. know? Um and that's got to be not just here. You know, that's got to be in a yeah. lot of pro-life states that this is happening. By the way, I think there's another way to view it, which would be there's also got to be like reasons why children die in high risk pregnancies that I wonder if the doctors are worried about getting accused of doing abortions. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And there could be like some bad liability of that in pro-life states and it could become an unfriendly practice environment, you know, yeah. if you're doing that type of stuff. And yeah. I don't think that's the motivation, but I, I think if I was in that discipline, I would be concerned about that. Yeah. I think if you or your spouse or you're not married, like if you haven't had a baby, you might be surprised how many times like abortion is offered <laughs> to you right. when you're pregnant. Um, even in like a pregnancy where like everyone is healthy and baby is wanted, like less so. But and then if there's like if you're an older mom or there's any slight deviation in the ultrasound, then it's like you know, doesn't stop. And you, you, yeah. You get offered abortion multiple times, yeah, right? Yeah. Like we kind of didn't want to do the suggested genetic testing just because we yeah. know that's mainly an avenue to offer us an abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Cause like, um, 
people will sometimes not want to know the gender of the baby or mm-hmm. the sex of the baby and have it be a surprise, right? Yeah. Well, the big surprise is going to be like, is your baby disabled? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that's kind of the, like, do you want to know that before you have a baby? Yeah. You know, where does this go? Oh, well, tell me if you get this sense. I'm kind of just quoting what I hear people say around me, including my wife, who is way more interested in all of this. Um, I've gotten the impression that like here in Kansas City, that there aren't that many Catholic OBGYN doctors because you can't literally go through the training to become a doctor like uh, that without doing abortions. Therefore, Catholics don't become that type of doctor, mm-hmm. right? But Catholics are very con- are basically using the services of OBGYN doctors a lot, yeah. you know? So when a Catholic doctor is an OBGYN doctor, maybe they were trained before Roe v. Wade or something, um, they get a ton of work people travel distances like we had to have a like I, I know people who've gone you know to other metropolitan areas to seek out pro-life help with fertility issues right same, like same here. yeah right like so you drive up to pennsylvania or <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. right and i yeah. think right now we should be encouraging young people to become OBGYN doctors like just go to a pro-life state or a pro-life state school um, you know, state school and pro-life state yeah. and you can get through that program now and we could have a wave of Catholic doctors. Yeah. Is that your impression that that's a big problem? Cause I, I think part of this returning to midwives that you see a lot of, which I think is fine, um, is partly due to a lack of good OBGYN doctors. You know, I never thought about it in that sense. I, I just thought that it must be like, Oh, Catholics who want to be doctors is a low number. And I, I think I hadn't really thought about that very obvious thing. It's very hard to become an OB without doing anything that is like morally <laughs> uh, problematic. I feel like there's probably people in our audience who know more about this than we do. And yeah, I, I'd absolutely. love to hear your comments. Yeah. Um. Now let's go to the second point. So it's already gotten to a point in our society where you rarely see someone with Down syndrome. Right. Even in my own lifetime, I remember seeing more of it when I was a kid than I do now. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think what's going to happen as a consequence of the repeal of Roe v. Wade is that 10 years from now, you're going to go to like a pro-life state and you're going to see more disabled kids. You're going to see more kids with Down syndrome. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's going to be just a consequence, you know, but it's also going to be very interesting to see how um, society at large reacts to that. Right. Yeah. Like. Right now, like the pro-life states tend to be the more rural states or the more Republican states, you know, and they're already kind of the butt of jokes. Yep. You know, and it's going right. to be interesting to see how comedy handles it and things like that. When people actually leave a state like a California or New York, show up in a, you know, Iowa and are like, I don't I actually don't know if pro- Iowa's pro-life. I know Missouri is, so I'll use yeah. Missouri. Uh and be like kind of shocked because I think it's going to be uh, I think people are going to be taken aback. Yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting consequence of this. And the direction I want to take that in is. I think this idea of the world being saved by beauty is this, you know, like, do you go to that state and like I have a disabled child and I find it very beautiful, yeah. you know, just and I think some of our friends do, too. Do you see the beauty in it? Or do Mm -hmm. you see the horror, you know, or the ugliness, you know? And I think it'll be a little bit like um, Catholic families and non-Catholic families. And I also think um, I'm also concerned about resource allocation with this, too. 
So what I mean by that is like one time I uh, was sitting down and kind of having a moment and like two um, couples walked in, right? Mm-hmm. And one couple uh, really looked great. Like they looked like what you're kind of supposed to be on Instagram a little bit. Like the dude was very muscular. He This is in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And he had like a shaved head and uh, he was very, very strong looking. But he also had on this like polo shirt with like the collar popped. Yeah. It was like, wasn't even a look back then really, but he was yeah. pulling it off. No, that was and a then- look. That was a look. The popped collar. That was a really? that was a whole thing. Yeah. That was like a frat kid thing, maybe, but this guy was like twenty eight or something. No, like that it was, was a whole sense. thing. You're not remembering. Okay, right. Well, you he never, was, you never he was participated in the pink shirt with the pop collar, so yeah. <laughs> How'd you know the color? That's great. All right. So yes, yeah, so that's it. So and then his like um female companion, I assume not married, came in and was like advertising her femininity by the way she packaged her body, you know, and like like you know, kind of very sexy. sexual. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, and he looked kind of sexy too. Right. And then this other couple came in and they had like five kids. Right. And none of the hair on the kids was quite right. You know, it all could have been a homegrown uh, <laughs> haircut. <laughs> you know, they were a little bit ragged. And the couple, the first couple that came in looked tired and they looked yeah. tired because they looked like they'd probably been clubbing the night before. Yeah. Right. And the next family that comes in looks tired too, but they look tired because they had to get five kids up and going. Yeah. You know? And I remember just sitting there and becoming very edified and seeing the beauty in the family and seeing the, seeing how like that family was sexier than this other family. Right. And even though they weren't like packaged, like they were sexy and even though more appealing, what do you mean? Like they just, yeah. Well, they're literally having sex. They're they're oh, yeah. like procreating. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, wait, there's a real sexuality there, yeah. and then there's kind of an empty sexuality here. Like, yeah. I have this feeling that like the devil doesn't want you to have a lot of sex with a lot of people. At the end of the day, the devil doesn't like sex. Yeah. Right. I think this oversexualization ends up in less sex. Mm. I think sex is too special of a thing, almost too holy of a thing. That the devil doesn't like it because like good things can happen in yeah, it, yeah. you know. So yeah. although he's like pro hypersexualization, pornography, et cetera, et cetera, at the end of the day, he's going to destroy sex. Yeah, and you see that in the transgender movement, frankly, because a lot yeah. of the people who go through that stuff end up unable to find any type of partner at all. You know, well, and and even unable to experience sex. So exactly that, right. Yeah. So it's yeah. like. A very sex-focused movement that ends up in no sex. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So anyway, so this family is more sexy. They seem more healthy. Yeah. They seem more happy. There's a beauty about them. And it's just like very recognizable upon reflection. When we say beauty is going to save the world, I think we mean people being able to see through the lies of the world and see this like more authentic beauty. Yeah. Right? It doesn't really mean stained glass windows. It means love like you can have a family with bad haircuts and holes in their jeans without love and it sucks yeah and it's not beautiful so you can't these are the accidentals of the love not the love yeah right so you can't just like say i'm gonna have a lot of kids i'm gonna go to church a lot i'm gonna do all this stuff but if you have not love then it's just gonna be just as ugly as if you'd gone clubbing the night before yeah you know maybe uglier yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, when it's a lot of dysfunctional relationships, uh, yeah. Right, and and you yeah. you also see there's like a poverty that goes with it. Like when people are 
being open to life and stuff like that, you're just not as wealthy as when you're like self-serving and just maximizing yeah. wealth. Yeah. And um, there's a beauty in that too. But once again, it's an accidental, not the core. Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay. You ready to transition again? <laughs> I, uh, I know that these these thoughts are hard to string together. But yeah. <laughs> so you and I have known people who went to prison and came out the other end Islamic. Yep. Right. Yep. And I've also known some Islamic people, particularly. I think if you listen to like some real old podcasts we did, we talk about Connie Grimes. Yeah. Who was a Catholic worker who died, but she was a huge friend of the Islamic community. And through her, I met a lot of like Islamic immigrants. Right. And in particular, I used to like walk into this cafe and they would just feed me for free just because I knew Connie, yeah. you know, Catholic worker. That's right. Cool. Yeah. And uh, this guy was Ethiopian and they hated prison Islam because like guys would come out of prison and want to go to all these Islamic cafes. And these guys are like, man, we share nothing with these guys. Yeah. 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 You know? And, um, but like, I know that when we met, like, these guys who we knew from the street who went in to prison and got Islam, it was kind of positive. Yeah. And it was positive because you had this kid without a dad who had no code in life, no structure. Yeah. And he'd kind of been put through this little boot camp with a code that was prison Islam, right? Yeah. It said, here's what women do. Here's what men do. Here's your job. You don't drink. You don't do this. Boom. You know? Yeah. I just want to say the, the means to getting these guys to become like the converting is kind of maybe manipulative, right? But yeah, exactly. It's like the the two things um, that I saw, it's like you get a code and you get um, brotherhood, which is also interesting about gangs, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And as a missionary, I'm like, well, shoot, Christianity can kick your butt if you want it to. Yeah. But because we've soft pedaled morality so much, we weren't able to offer these guys a code, even though they yeah. were very familiar with Christians. Yeah. They'd never seen it as like a hardcore thing they could apply themselves to. Right. You know? Right. And so it kind of was pointing at a failure of yeah. our own like evangelization and religion that they were becoming prison Islam. Right. But by the way, just for everyone who doesn't know this, like I've been like in, um, the post office in Southeast DC and women will walk in with burqas. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, did some like Afghani refugees come in and they're wearing their burqas. And then you start hearing these women cuss like sailors and you're like, And oh. you see, like you see their nails. <laughs> right. 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 These are yeah. just ladies from Southeast DC yeah. who like, yeah. you'd probably married some guy who was prison Islam and they decided yeah. to max out and go burqa, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's pretty, it's interesting and kind of funny, but yeah. Um, so there's this need for a code. And I kind of think that that's also why we're seeing this great moment of traditional Latin mass Catholicism is because it has kind of like kept the code. Yeah. You know, whereas kind of the more mainstream Catholicism hasn't emphasized like, hey, it needs to be hardcore. There needs to be hardcore morality. You have to make these sacrifices. You got to have, you know, it's like they're they've kind of like more stuck to the code and we're hungry for the code. And that's why it's very attractive. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And maybe there's been like an over accommodation and an over nuancing, <laughs> you know, where there it's just like, been. is yes. what's, is it or is it not? You know, um, there, I yeah. think there definitely has been, I it was, I've been listening to some guys who I kind of admire because of what mm -hmm. they do politically, but they're also traditional Latin mass guys. And I was listening to them and I was thinking, you have more than the average person realized how off track this like radical progressivism is mm -hmm. and it's like good for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you've also realized that Catholicism had something in it far beyond what society ever told you it did. 
like yeah. good for you, right? Yeah. And then you also think Catholicism might be the antidote for what you see as going wrong. Mm-hmm. Also not a bad conclusion, right? And then they see within Catholicism, the traditional Latin mass is the most perfect, like, tradition to counter the problem that we have, yeah. I believe, you know? And yeah. I'm not, I don't want to trivialize their spirituality to say there's not something authentically, deeply yeah. spiritual there, but, like, there's also this, like, it fits really well right now, right? Yeah. And when I think of that, I think, like, I kind of keep thinking every logical step in there, like, why they, like, are both kind of right on and then ended up in the traditional Latin mass, I think, yes, 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 yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would kind of, like, like all the little decisions yeah. they make. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what I want is I want the church fathers. I want scripture. I want the dynamite of Christ to mm-hmm. be fully exposed. I think that Vatican II was designed to do that. I think the vernacular was designed to do that. And I think that what we have here is trappings. You know, yeah. like um, you have accidentals. I don't, I don't ever see a church father saying that the more piously you receive communion, that'll make you a saint. Right, right. You know, like you should piously receive communion. Like that's yeah. like not in debate, you know. Yeah. But like that is not the sinner. The yeah. sinner is love. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And the trappings can be a distraction, you know, like. I think that's where we're at. And I think yeah. that's why you see, that's why you see these policies coming out is because people who know it's a distraction are making policies and it could be ham fisted. I don't know that these policies are good policies, but I know why they're trying, yeah. you know, like why they're trying to like limit ad orientum or all of these little things is because these accidentals become the core and become like the flag of, you know, a religious yeah. movement that's actually not yeah. right. You know, it's yeah. not at the core love. But it's too bad because some of it is like very quite beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And yeah. I also yeah. want to say, like, I want to acknowledge all the problems of like a a false Christianity that can be too liberal, mm-hmm. while thinking this is not the answer. Also, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, are we ready to transition to Black Lives Matter and critical race theory? The yeah historical perspective the twenty thousand foot perspective <laughs> okay let's start with um you and i are trying to get deeply within the black community we're doing mission work we're in people's living rooms we're going to a black catholic church we're mm-hmm. going to other catholic yeah. other black churches too at times yeah. you know and we're hearing about what they think are the problems and it does seem like society is not valuing black lives enough yeah, I absolutely. think from our perspective, right? Yeah. Now, what what did you see as the problem? What were you being told of as a problem? And were you hearing people complain about police brutality? So, yeah. And just to clarify, like, I haven't been doing as much active ministry as you in the last, like, four to five years, maybe four years. Right. But, so, but most so of this the, stuff is pre yeah. four to five years ago yeah, anyway. Right. So. so, yeah. But pre four to five years ago, like... I like not one time heard a mother say she was like worried about police brutality. I did hear a lot of women being very afraid of their sons being on the street. Um, I know multiple people that have been locked up because of things they actually did on the street. I know people that have been killed. um, And I think there was like the main stress was like, will our sons and then (laughs) Uh, also our daughters, you know, be overcome by street violence and drugs. I was going to say, I don't think people realize how common murder is right now. Like, yeah, like it's not like, hey, we know a guy who was killed through our ministry. We mm-hmm. know half dozen to yeah. a dozen people who've been yeah. killed. I even had a guy killed 
last month. He was, um, this summer I was helping this family I've known for years and years. And a kid was there who I know decently, like I, I keep running into him. We always focus on the parents and he's only like 13, 14. So I knew him, you know, yeah. and he was the kid who showed the most promise. Like we were fixing yeah. up their house mm. and I didn't really want to go on the roof because I'm a 45 year old dude, you know? This kid was up on the roof, patched the hole before, without me telling him to, because yeah. I wasn't going to order a kid up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, but he was super helpful, super polite, most helpful person in the family. He died last month. He got yeah. killed at a convenience store. Um, yeah. This is not, you know, this this is happening fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, one family uh, that we've been close to in D.C. for many years, uh, like, she's lost two sons. The sheet yeah. violence, you know. And we've also known people who killed people. Yeah. So this is a big deal, right? Now, the only police abuse, like I've known real small things that would be complain that you could complain about. But yeah. the funniest thing I ever know is I know this kid who, uh, I don't know anything horrible police abuse wise, but I know this kid who, um, he's a friend of mine. When he turned 17 or 18, he was a huge, like, wrestling is like his favorite thing like professional wrestling like when he found out that professional wrestling wasn't real he <laughs> said it was worse than the day he found out santa claus was not real <laughs> and uh he even still loves it to this day even after he found out it's not real but when he was 17 or 18 he finally got his own money uh wrestling was coming to town and he bought his own tickets to go see it right yeah and on his birthday on Southern Avenue, there was a, dra a drug dragnet thing, and he got swept up in it. And by the evening, he was released because he wasn't actually, uh, they didn't have anything on him. Yeah. You know, I don't want to say he wasn't involved at all, but I don't think he was involved at all that day, yeah. you know. Uh, but he had missed his wrestling. Yeah. And he repeats that story to this day. <laughs> yeah. And another um, thing. This, go ahead. Ben, ben needs to put a warning uh, to parents before that Santa bomb you just dropped. but. Anyway. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> ben, do that. Uh, sorry. Uh, trying to keep Santa alive in my family. <laughs> I, I, I have well, mixed feelings about it, it now. a whole bunch of others. Uh, all right. Anyway. I, I want to say two other things. Like, I'm, I'm working with a, a guy who deals a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. Hoping he, you know, changes his life, right? The way he talks about cops is kind of the same way you see cops talked about in mob movies. They're just doing their job. Like he seems to have yeah. a respect for them. Mm. Like in his house has been raided. He's literally, I've seen him crying that he thinks he's going to lose everything in a raid or, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen him freak out about getting like, you know, yeah. caught, but he doesn't blame cops. Yeah. You know? And I found that when I was like talking to moms and stuff and I'd be like, well, you know, something bad would have happened in the neighborhood i'd be like well are you going to call the cops and they'd be like no and i'd be like well why not and they always had a problem articulating why why not they didn't say why not because they were afraid to get of people getting beaten yeah mm -hmm. yeah they weren't afraid of they never mentioned racism as a reason they never mentioned police brutality as a reason yeah and i think a little bit of it is the snitches get stitches idea mm-hmm but I don't think that was the major thing because I think yeah. there were times where they could have easily anonymously reported things and yeah. gotten away with it. I sensed that it was something like they felt like this is an eternal problem. This is our neighborhood's problem. This is our family's problem. This yeah. is not their problem. Like they're the other and we want to 
they also could be just that it was a big economy. You yeah. know, like they knew that like if you ended drug dealing in their neighborhood, there was going to be a lot of people with less money. Yeah. You know, so I always thought that was interesting, like why they wouldn't report. But then there were certain things they would report. Like it wasn't that they never reported any crimes to the police. It wasn't that they never worked with the police. Mm-hmm. Like if, if a little girl was shot, like yeah. in a drive by, like by accident, everyone reported to the police. Yeah. It was like if if young men had a shootout, like kind of like almost like a duel between equals, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and someone was killed, they kind of wouldn't cooperate. But like if an innocent was killed or a grandma was killed or yeah. something like that, they were like all about justice and all yeah. about the police throwing the book at them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So somewhere in that mystery is the answer is part of the answer to why the why the police in these neighborhoods are not always working together. Yeah. And I think like there was uh, sometimes an antagonism that I don't <laughs> totally understand. Um, like I would see, you know, like, you know, back when young people posted things on Facebook, they would post videos of like a policeman getting beat up by a group of boys in the neighborhood, you know, on Southern Ave or whatever. Um, I, You know, I, I kind of think that is an antagonism because clearly the young boys are doing some stuff the police don't want them to do. And so there's an antagonism there, but there's also, that's like a huge flex for any kid. Yeah. You know, if you get away with that, you've really impressed a lot of kids where, and, right, and right. on the street, like violence is your kind of capital. Yeah, no, but right. Know? And th- I, I think it's like interesting when, <laughs> I don't know, like, it's like we talk like all these, like police are just going around, you know, brutalizing, you know, inner city children or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and, and there's, uh, I think there was a more complicated thing going on, you know, and like once I saw a kid uh, who was like being pinned down on the police and he was in handcuffs, he was like pretty young. He was like maybe 14 or 15 and he had been walking home uh, from Baloo High School and he was like with his friends and he went and slapped the policeman in the face like unprovoked. Right. And every single person that was there, like this is on MLK. So it's like me and the missionary I'm with are like the only you know, not black people. And, um, everyone was like, yep. <laughs> so he, he deserves it. You know? Um, yeah. What, what's kind of interesting, I think to some people who listen to what we're saying is that they will have heard, uh, black people from the inner city say that it's a huge problem. And it could be like, I mean, it, like I, all I have is my own personal experience and I have mm-hmm. statistics, right? Yeah. The statistics don't seem to bear out that it's a huge problem. Then my personal experience doesn't, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible that in certain precincts in certain cities yeah. it is, you know, yeah. but the other thing is that I think people need to know is sometimes there's an inward and outward dialogue. Yeah. So if you go to a black church or go into someone's living room, you're going to see here the inward dialogue in that community about what they think the problem is. Yeah. Right. I never heard it focus on police brutality. You know, I heard it focus on breaking down of families like yeah. things that I think are quite true. I think they were on target with their critiques, you know, school, street schools. violence, schools being a problem, although they don't complain about schools enough in my mind. Like I think schools are a bigger problem than they're recognizing because I don't think their value in the inner city, the education is just not valued. You yeah. know, uh, the people aren't even sending their kids to school 30 days of the year. Matt, they're basically giving their kids disabilities, you know, yeah. um, and that's and that's a community but but they're they're tackling it like it's a cultural problem, not like it's a systemic problem put on them. Mm-hmm. But then when they talk outside their community, they're speaking the language that motivates, that serves, you know, that like 
like that mm-hmm. will get people fired up, that will get programs to happen. That yeah. will get that. And I saw this also. Um, the first time I saw this was in the Palestinian community. I don't want to piss anyone off with this, but <laughs> Boy. like I went, I've got been to Israel a few times and I kind of have this like weird kind of like immature love for Arabs. It's, it's from watching like Lawrence of Arabia and uh-huh. like just like just like consuming these different things where I just like Bedouins are like the coolest thing to me. Yeah. Anyway, I would like you'd get invited for tea at these like Arab shops in Israel, mm-hmm. you know, and when they invite an American for tea, you go to the back room, you have tea with this guy. And he honestly never tried to sell me anything. It was always the best hospitality. That's part of the Arab culture, which I think is really cool. Yeah. And they would try to explain to you why this is Palestine and why it's important that they get their independence. Yeah. And I would talk to them, right? And the message, I would push back a little bit. I'd be like, well, you know, before the you know Jewish state, there was the English state. And they're like, yeah, that sucked too. And I go, well, before the English state, it wasn't like you had independence. It was the Ottoman Empire. You were like a colony. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, that was good though. And I'd be like, well, why? Because it's still the language of like a foreign oppressor. Right, yeah. like the Ottomans are Turks, and they don't view Arabs quite in the same way. But yeah. they were like, "Yes, but it was Islamic," right? Mm. And you start to realize the importance of in Islam having an Islamic state, uh, because Islam actually has like a code of how to run a state within the yeah. Quran, and their and their prophet is a conqueror and a and a governmental leader, not just a religious leader. Therefore, like they felt like they couldn't fully live their faith without yeah. like a truly Islamic state. So this Jewish state is just horrible. Yeah, right. You know, it doesn't matter how good a Jewish state there is or how many yeah. rights they're given or whatever. It's yeah. horrible. And I was visiting this. A lot of these conversations happened before I've been to Israel before and after what's called, I think it's called the Infatata where like um, there was some violence around Oh one in Israel, and that's what Jews, Arabs and Jews had been getting along really well, and Jews were even going into the Palestinian areas and shopping at their shops, and then it reversed, and now we have a wall apartheid situation. Yeah. But I've been there before and a little bit after that, you know? Mm. And um, But then when I come to the States, I would go to Catholic worker houses or wherever and hear people talk about Palestinian independence, and they're talking about an indigenous group. They're talking about human rights. They're yeah. talking about rice for minorities, right? And they're Palestinians giving these talks, but they're not saying anything like what I had over tea. Yeah. Right? They're yeah. speaking the external language that will mm. motivate yeah. Westerners to support Palestinian causes. They're not talking what they really think internally. Yeah. Right? I've seen that with the black community a lot. I don't blame them for it. I just think it's like they have problems they're working on internally and thinking about including things like breakdown of the family. And then they have the stuff they're willing to say politically. And it's not the same thing. I was going to ask you this. So do you think people are more anxious about police brutality now? Or do you find that it's still the same? There's still the same internal worries. So over the last few years, I've been reading articles about like black parents talking about how they talk to their kids about interacting with cops. And I think those articles were 100% true. And I think they were true before Black Lives Matter. I think they've always been saying, look, you got to make sure you do everything you can to signal to the cop that you're not yeah. a threat. You're, you're not, not doing right. anything wrong. You're not going to, you know, have a gun or whatever, right? Yeah. Like you need to do all that. And um, hopefully that works. That's actually, you could almost take exactly the same talk and say, that's what you should tell white kids too. Yeah. And I think it's right. I mean, when you're dealing with someone who deals in violence and deals in enforcing laws, you need to be signaling that you're not violent and that yeah. you're not going to 
you know, like, yeah. So I think that's true. Um, I don't know. I think that uh, sometimes, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we did a survey before and after Black Lives Matter and found out that the people we serve are more concerned with police brutality now than before just because yeah. it's taken up so much of the airwaves, you know? Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, no, I want to talk about another big problem that I don't think outsiders understand. Um, there is an enormous difference between suburban policing and inner city policing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I think Laura and I, before we did this, we were talking, we've met racist attitudes in cops and yeah. firemen, Yeah, you know, and I don't know that that results in racist actions. I have to say that. And yeah. I don't know that they had these attitudes before they went into the force. I think there's something. Yeah. And I also don't know that the black cops aren't also having these same racist attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's some dark stuff that you see in police culture that is just not good. I mean, yeah. I don't know what to, I don't know that it leads to, you know, mass police abuse, but it certainly is not a good thing, you know? Right. The other thing I want to say is suburban police and inner city police are very different and it's the, the inner city police situation is problematic and I think it needs changed for, for some reasons. So the, the suburban police operate on a response tactic like meaning they're not meant to be seen. They're not meant to be sitting on your neighborhood street all the time to be seen. Right. Right. You don't want that in your suburban neighborhood. Right. Yeah. But they're meant that with, if you call 911, they're there within two minutes. Yeah. You know, so they're, yeah. they're highly responsive, but they're not like doing this like ministry of presence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but then the other thing is they enforce every law. Like, yeah. If you are smoking a joint on the sidewalk, you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. Right. In a suburban neighborhood. Right. If a cop finds you smoking a joint on the sidewalk, you're done, right? Yeah. Now, in a urban environment, this is not, it's the reverse. It's like yeah. cops have terrible response times, but they're kind of like around the corner all the time. Yeah. You know, they're sitting in their squad car just sitting in the neighborhood so you can find them that way, but they're not that responsive to 911. Like yeah. my hold times on 911 have been well over 15 minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. I've called like on gunshots and it's like. Right. Like, why are you calling? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other problem is, is that urban cops are, have so many laws that they're not going to go enforce, but the laws are still on the books. So yeah. that gives them way too much discretion, meaning like there's all these things they can get you for, but they're triaging. Like they're going to go deal with murder before they deal with a guy smoking a joint on the sidewalk. Right. So so, but if they're mad at the guy who's smoking a joint on the sidewalk, or if the guy who's smoking a joint on the sidewalk is disrespectful, well, then they'll enforce the law, mm-hmm. right? And what this also happens is a lot of these guys in the inner city, I'm saying guys because it is typically male, um, they have warrants. Yeah. Uh, meaning like they got caught for a joint on the side, something not very serious, say. They're not very serious warrants. But if you don't pay that ticket, if you don't show up in court, which they're yeah. not doing... Um, I don't, I'm not going to say they can't, I'm not going to say it's not their fault that they're not doing it, but they do end up with a warrant and it's typically not a big deal until it is a big deal. Right. You know, until you are caught in a dragnet and you might not have been doing anything wrong, but you have a warrant. And if they just want to get, you're now spending the night in jail. Yeah. Right. So to me, this makes cops dictators. It makes them like, gives them way too much power. Yeah. And, uh, I heard a guy here say that in the inner city, it feels like cops run the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. 
and in the suburbs it doesn't feel that way yeah. and that's related to what i think i'm describing yeah you know yeah i think in the suburbs it's like there's might be like more of a feeling like right the cop is a public servant and you can tell him what you need him to do or don't want him to do or whatever yeah. you know and a little bit more of do you know yeah. who i am like how dare you arrest <laughs> me you know yeah um and I don't know exactly the solution to this, but I feel like the start of it is we have to get laws off the books that we're not mm -hmm. willing to enforce. Yeah. Like if the, we need to not say what's a good law, what's a bad law. We need to say what's a law worth enforcing. Yeah. You I know? don't, I don't like the idea of like, um, people shouldn't be like held accountable <laughs> for breaking laws. Right. And I think you're saying something different. Um, let's not have stupid laws that we're going to maybe hold them accountable for or not hold them accountable for. And they have this thing hanging over their head always. Well, let's say that heroin, we just know it's really bad for people and it hurts society. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But let's say that you're going to have open heroin use and people shooting up on the streets and you can't, for some reason, you don't have enough cops or resources to enforce that law. Mm -hmm. I would say get rid of the law, Ooh. even though it's like kind of a good law if you could enforce it, but if you don't have the resources to enforce it, just don't make it a law because that creates a dynamic where one person has power over another person with a lot of discretion. Mm. And I think that's a negative power dynamic. Yeah. I don't mean to be using Marxist language right there, but <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, so you're saying uh, we, we should all become California, but I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but why, like, I, I guess it's like, if you think about the California drug problem, uh, is that, are they letting that exist because of of the reason you're saying, or is it different? Well, it's a nationwide drug problem, but we're talking about like open air drug use, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I just don't think you want. I don't think you want to say, "Sir, here's a gun. Here's the power to arrest. Here's an incredible power over your fellow man. And yeah. then here's a bunch of things you can willy nilly choose what you want to do." Yeah. You know, I think that's negative. So. I do think you could, like, I think you would cut back the laws at first and then add to them as you get compliance. Like, I heard this in New York City that the, one of the ways they cleaned it up is they said, we're going to start enforcing the rule that there's no broken windows. Because mm. we're going to, it's not because broken windows were the thing making New York City full of crime in the 80s. Yeah. It was just that, like, once you know you can't mess with the law, you're going to have a different attitude. Huh. You know, so yeah. I do think you could have an ethic of like no nonsense laws. Um, yeah. But like as of now, like literally everyone in the inner city does a calculation, including myself. Like, yeah, like am I going to make lights. this illegal left turn? Yeah. Do yeah. the cops even care if I'm yeah. going to make this illegal left turn because yeah. it's safe? You know? And, yeah. And um, so uh, like, by the way, we have some people at Simple House who are attracted to become missionaries who are really great rule and law followers. Right. <laughs> And during COVID, it basically broke them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they've been able to always drive the speed limit and obey all the laws. Yeah. And then COVID was like enough to drive them nuts because yeah. the laws, particularly in DC, got insane. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a background of the way we felt about it. So I feel like we felt like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Laura, we felt like street violence is an enormous problem. And we felt like education is an enormous problem. Like yeah. what that was being accepted as acceptable in the inner city was just not acceptable. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. All right. And then comes Colin Kaepernick, who was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right. And 
What was your initial reaction to Colin? Oh, I was like, I was so proud of him. Good for him. <laughs> I, I know. I, I thought it was great. I thought he was doing something like meaningful and against the grain and hard, you know, and he was putting a career he'd worked hard for, like potentially on the line, it seemed, you know, almost right away. And I really respected him for it. And I, I, I thought he was great. And I, I was like proud and admired him. I thought the critique of like, him insulting patriotism wasn't valid. Not yeah, for absolutely. Some, absolutely. Because yeah. he wasn't mooning during, you know, yeah. it wasn't like he was like sitting on the ground and twiddling his thumbs. He was kneeling, yeah. you know, which is, which is a respectful. It's like a, It was a respectful gesture. And there was something about it that to me was like taking seriously, like, um, our country in a way like i don't know but now i don't think you and i were talking about this with each other and forming each other's thoughts no, but like within we a week i had changed my mind yeah what how did you what what was your change on this well <laughs> i i had kind of the impression you know like uh, the reporting on what was happening and then i heard him talk you know i, I read an interview and i was just like oh <laughs> <laughs> and and sorry football players of the world but you know um there is a, a stereotype of you know football players being kind of dumb you know and i was just like <laughs> you needed someone to help you formulate these thoughts but i actually think yeah. football players are almost always surprisingly intelligent somehow like really beautiful women and really muscular men aren't supposed to be geniuses like there's supposed to be like some like weird fairness there that you don't get to be yeah. super, you know, athlete. Well, it, and it takes some intelligence to achieve that. But I, well, I, don't know, I actually like think I actually think NFL linemen and NFL quarterbacks for some reason, whenever I hear them talking, I'm like, that guy's really intelligent. The quarterback has to be he smart, has to be. right? Colin yeah, Kaepernick that's is a quarterback, like that's, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, well, you know he's smart, but it's kind of like he wasn't. It almost felt like he was being manipulated a little bit, but that wasn't what turned me off. It was, there was a me, specific thing, right? That right. Go ahead. Yes, I was actually like listening to Sports Center, and they were like, "We asked Colin uh, how long he was going to kneel and what would it take to get him to get up," mm -hmm. and he said, "Until things get better." Yeah. And I thought, "Oh no." Yeah. Like yeah. what? Yeah. That is the mo That's like the worst. That's not yeah. an objective. Yeah, you like know? when when are you you're never gonna get off your knee? Yeah, and I I was like, oh, he's gonna do this until he perceives like racism is over. Like I don't understand. Right. You know, there's like no measurable thing, and I think it would have been a really powerful gesture if he would have said like. Um, you know, the San Francisco Police Department has this specific problem, and I am not going to get up off my knee until they address it right. in this specific way, like measurable. You right. achieve something like you can really you could really achieve something that way. And too, even if you he know? didn't prescribe the, uh, the, right. the method, he could have yeah. just prescribed the goal, you know, and then yeah. let them come up with the method. But yeah. I've also thought that the whole Black Lives Matter movement's been a little bit inauthentic in that they don't do a good job of prescribing methods to cure their problems. I think I'm sorry, just we can get into this more. I think their method is dismantle, which isn't like a not exactly. really a method. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Their method is blow up the system. Like this is a critique that's not my main critique because my main mm -hmm. critique is a critique of the critical race theory. But I think that when they were at their height, when so many people were coming out in peaceful protest at the very beginning, yeah. they could have raised as much money as they wanted and they could have gone to any city in the nation and said, we're going to partner with you and your police force. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And we're going to yeah. hire a bunch of people with six-figure salaries, hire anyone you want, 
for the next 10 years and we're going to reform this place. Right. And by the end of our tenure of five years, 10 years, whatever the term was, you're going to see a decrease in this, a decrease in this, a decrease in this, and we're going to fix it. And then that'll be a model that all you guys can copy, you know? And there was never that type of attitude. The attitude was kind of like, burn it down. It's corrupt. And then magically something great's going to come. Yeah. Doesn't seem like you even really want to fix the problem when you, when that's your attitude. Yeah. I I think there's a thing that I, I think like a lot of families that have been uh, like their son or brother or whoever was kind of became poster childs for children for police brutality, like have felt burned by black lives matters. Like all this money was raised in their name and like, there nothing changed for them you know um yeah and and i think black lives matter did raise an amazing amount of money and that never got down to black lives matters like local chapters or whatever and so their method is just dismantling you know and inserting kind of weird ideas into the culture which doesn't need that much money you know behind it right my take is there's kind of a problem with this whole attitude and Black Lives Matter is already, I think, kind of getting, is just less and less relevant every day uh, yeah, yeah. Um, as an organization. Now, yeah. the ideas behind it are not less and less relevant, no. but the organization is. The so organization we don't need to spend itself. too much time yeah. worrying about the organization. But yeah. um, the thing about the Colin Kaepernick until things get better, it's like, let's say you believe we need to have prisons, right? Mm-hmm. Well, a prison involves someone with power mm-hmm. uh, locking somebody else up, right? And having power over them. That's just like inherent in what a prison is, right? If you were to say, I want to make it so that there's never a case of prisoner abuse, I would be like, you're, you're high. You're like, this is insane. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? If you were to say, I want to cut prison abuse in half, I'd be like, good, let's talk about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because like, as long as you have people with power over other people, there's going to be problems. There's yeah. going to be sin. You yeah. know? It's like saying, I, I want to um, end people getting mad at each other. I want to end people competing, you know. Yeah, right? it's utopian it's, at the point that everyone should acknowledge it as dumb. You yeah, know? yeah. But I, I do think, like, obviously reducing prison abuse in a place where there's a lot of prison abuse is, like, a really right. good so, and necessary thing. Yeah. Prison abuse is a corollary for police abuse. Yeah. So. With police abuse, it's like, how will you know if you've done a good job? Well, you could compare yourself to yourself. You know, mm-hmm. like you could say, in three years, we're going to cut the, we're going to cut back on this and this and this. These are our goals. Yeah. Or you could compare yourself to other police forces around the world or yeah. to historically what's happened, you know. Um, but you can't just say you're going to utopianly like get rid of police, like the defund the police idea, which was like so. I mean, like everyone in the inner city I knew wanted more policing, not less, Yeah, you know, and then yeah. the defund the police thing's happening. And I'm like, this is coming from someplace other than the people. Then people you know? that don't have to deal with. I know. I wanted to be like, go defund your own police department. Don't defund yeah. mine. And the yeah. Black Lives Matter protests were backfiring because I'm sitting here living in an inner city police district. Right. Yeah. And guess what? When there's a Black Lives Matter protest with a riot burning things in my city, yeah. If there's someone breaking into my house, do you think I'm going to get a police response? Right. 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 And now yeah. my police force can't hire anyone. You know, like they have terrible time hiring and retaining any officers. Do you think I'm better? You think anybody, not just Clark, yeah. but like, do you think any of the blacks who live in my neighborhood are better off now? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a huge negative, right? Oh, yeah. wait, all of these critiques weren't really things we planned on doing. We wanted to get from this to critical race theory. You ready? 
Yep. <laughs> okay. I think that critical race theory and more broadly Marxism is something that feels very simple. Like they'll throw like, well, you're a racist at you, or they'll throw some simple critique yeah. at you. But when you dig into it, they run back and get in super complicated language about yeah. superstructures and all types of things, right? And really it's it's that language is confusing even for them. And it's actually not that profound, you know? Yeah. And there's a constant defining, redefining of these. Right. Yeah. And these ideas are very powerful. And I think they're powerful for two reasons. One is going to be mind virus, which let's talk about that in a minute. But like, let's also talk about like the significance of Karl Marx, which is behind critical race theory and Freud. They're not really related, but I like Freud because Freud has a lot of crazy theories, right? Like the oral stage, the yeah. anal stage, the yeah. anal fixation or whatever, right? <laughs> and we can talk about these theories and joke about them like mm -hmm. Freud's irrelevant. Yeah. But in reality, Freud's the guy who made us all think the subconscious is very influential in your life. Yeah. So we've always known of the subconscious, but like yeah. whether or not you thought the subconscious was 10% of your mind or 90% of your mind was the question. Yeah. And Freud kind of brought society to say, you are way more subconscious than you thought and less conscious than you thought. Yeah. And that's a, an enormously powerful point he made that's a, that most of us ha are accepting to this day, even if we've rejected all the funny little theories he had. Right. Right. All right. right. Marx is kind of similar in that way, in that his ideas of power structure and his ideas of biases and rationality are very persuasive. Uh, they fit his initial argument about classism. They mm -hmm. also fit, you can be a gender theorist who uses these ideas. You can mm -hmm. be a race theorist who uses these ideas. You can talk about disabled people and use these ideas. You can use this idea about fat people if you want. You even mm -hmm. see that, you know. But like, it's all about power structure and the limitations of rationality and bias, right? Mm -hmm. It's also weird because we're not inventing this term. It's kind of a mind virus. Yeah. How would you describe a mind virus? Well, it's like a, so a virus makes you sick, right? <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I would say a mind virus is an idea that, that you can kind of catch that um, doesn't serve you well or makes you kind of think weirdly or wrongly or in a way that, you know, makes you unwell. It's also like self-replicating, like somehow yeah, like, like a vi also like a virus, also like a virus, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's also um, hard to kick. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like if you have an idea that haunts you and then you like sit down, well rested, think hard, pray about it, figure it out and defeat this idea. But then the next day it comes back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah. this is not abnormal. This is like scrupulosity. This is, yeah. um, I think the historical critical method of biblical interpretation falls into mind virus territory. Yeah. Um, just doubt can be a mind virus kind of, yeah. you know, anxiety. Yeah. Anxiety, you know, so yeah. there's certain things here that are more personalities than ideologies, like than contagious ideologies, but yeah. th this critical race theory and Karl Marx is kind of like a contagious ideology. Well, I, I thought I heard an interesting thing um, about, I, I just heard someone de uh, define ideology uh, in an interesting way. And it's when you think there's one thing that explains everything. Right. Um, and it, it's like an oversimplification of reality that doesn't acknowledge it's an oversimplification. Yeah. Like you need to oversimplify reality at times 
or you need to simplify, not oversimplify reality at times. <laughs> right, right, right. But like yeah. when it's overly simple and you d- get rid of the mystery, it's a, it's definitely, yeah. it's an ideology. Yeah. Well, and, and so I think it's like, if you think one thing explains everything, you, you will see it everywhere. You will literally see it everywhere. Right. Um, and, right. uh, I have heard, um, like more than one, um, just on watching YouTube, like I, there's one person in particular that stands out where she talks about, uh, you know, she had kind of this mind virus, <laughs> um, and everything she was like always looking for microaggressions or racist actions. And it was like everything in her day that happened to her was like racist, you know, someone opened the door for her. They didn't think she was able to do it herself. That's racist. Someone didn't open the door for her. Right. It was racist, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, and she, she was like literally making herself physically sick and having like mental breakdowns because she would have a bad day every day. You know, what's, what's the contagion aspect. I think the contagion aspect is it's an interpretive key that explains almost everything. Yeah. It's also, I think, I think where there's like an attraction to have the interpretive key to everything. It's wrong. Like the world is not that way, but it is like in the complex overwhelming world, it is attractive to think you have the interpretive key to everything. (laughs) And sometimes people treat Catholicism that way. And like popes have said, don't treat our religion as an ideology. Yeah. You know, it is mm-hmm. deeper than an ideology. Yeah. Um, yep. But there's so there's the interpretive key thing that's attractive. There's the idea that it lets you at times like kind of um, correct other people and be righteous in that way. Yeah. It also lets you be like a victim and not be at fault. That's yeah. an attractive thing. It, it, it could also make you the defender of victims. Yes. Right. So it's all kind of like it's somehow playing on our emotions to feel like we're doing Mm -hmm. something really good. And even if we defeat it, you know, even if we like if I give you the proof on paper why it's all wrong, you have to still be worried it's going to come back and come back and come back because it's because it's viral. You know, so let's talk about why it is wrong. Um, I think that all of the Marxian thought has like two aspects to it. And I'm not going to use Marxist terms because I think that's all part of letting them control language and not that great. Um, One idea is this, is that all of history and human behavior could be thought of in like a continuum and you have to have an opinion of how you explain things, right? Mm -hmm. On one side of this continuum is everything is a result of groups and resource struggle. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the continuum is history and everything's explained by great individuals doing great things. Right. So it's called the great man theory of history and dismissed yeah. as like sexist and dumb. Right. So the truth is both extremes are wrong. Right. Yeah. Like, like as, as a Christian, you have to believe that great individuals matter. Otherwise, how can we say Jesus is the center of history? Yeah. Right. And we also think that St. Francis and the saints and different people have done very significant things in our history and mattered. Right. Yeah. Um, I also like to think of like, the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. Like, we fought the British Empire twice with radically different outcomes. Yeah, You yeah. know, and it just was a matter of timing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, we fought the British when we had a shot, and we had fought the British when they were kind of, like, well-rested. Yeah. And uh, individuals made those choices. Yeah. They called their shot. Like, they, and <laughs> when they called the shot well, it had a great outcome. When they called the shot bad, we had mm-hmm, a terrible mm-hmm. outcome. Uh, even though, you know, so these things matter, you know, both the individual and the groups and the resources matter. Mm-hmm. I, I've been reading a lot about World War II, and like some of the articles you read are like World War II is always a predetermined outcome, 
because of population sizes and because of production capacity and resources. And it makes yeah. a lot of sense. It's very persuasive. And then other times it's like World War II hung in the balance in these couple moments. And yeah. because of the action of these individuals who were kind of yeah. heroic, it, it, we, we prevailed. Right? Yeah. And both can kind of be true. What the problem yeah. is, is when you think only one is when you're radically on one side of the spectrum or the other. It would be insane to think that um, like a tiny army could beat a huge empire or whatever, you right. know. Um, right. Yeah. But, um, but that you don't have to try to beat your opponent because you have more resources would be the other conclusion, you know. Right. And, and <laughs> yeah. small armies have prevailed at times. And, and small you know? armies. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The thing that Marx is doing is he's doing like this kind of scientific historicalism. And he's saying that the whole engine of history is group struggle. Yeah. And it's based on resources and it's based on power struggle with groups. And he's dismissing the individual. You know, he's dismissing yeah. the Christ. He's dismissing the St. Francis. He's yeah. dismissing the great general. He's dismissing Abraham Lincoln. He's dismissing Martin Luther King. Like yeah. ultimately Martin Luther King is the enemy of critical race theory. Right. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's this other spectrum you have to make it have an opinion on too, that every rational person I believe is in the middle. And it's that, is your rationality actually true or is your rationality the result of subconscious bias of power struggle of, you know, your reason is being basically perverted by your self-interest, right? Yeah. The Catholic church acknowledges that self-interest, selfishness, all these things will bias your reason. And that's why we have things like asceticism. That's mm -hmm. why we have things like check and balances with, you know, philosophy and like church teaching to kind of like check and balance your conclusions and things like yeah. this. Right. And, and, and the Catholic church also teaches <laughs> that anyone, right. Uh, is like a sinner and has self-interest and greed and right. pride, right? No one um, has the perfect reason. Right, but you can be poor and you can be greedy, you know? <laughs> oh, you're kind of saying that like every group is self-interested and greedy, not just the dominant group. The right. poor can mm -hmm. be self-interested yeah. and greedy, yes. Yeah. And I actually don't know that Marx would disagree with you on that. So yeah, the question then is like, do you believe it's all one way or another, mm -hmm. you know? And when you were kind of in this Marxian paradigm, it's like whatever, like first you define your groups. Are your groups going to be classes? Are your groups going to be sexes? Are your groups going to mm -hmm. be race, races? Are your groups mm -hmm. going to be define these groups, then create the yeah. power struggle. Then yeah. whatever the dominant group is saying is just serving the purpose of perpetuating the dominant group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is incredibly dehumanizing yeah. to everyone. Yeah. And it means like, so like you have to tell your kid, like, well, you're the oppressed in this group and other kid, you're the oppressor in this group, you know, and you have to put people into these like that. That's the, the category. And so it's extremely hopeless. Like when, like if you raise your kid, you want to raise them believing in great people influence history. And you also yeah. want to raise them in thinking that, uh, they have to do their best to make good judgments. Yeah. You know, that not yeah. all their judgments are just inherently flawed and it's all hopeless, you know. Yeah. And there's also this like, you know, kind of hypocrisy in the Marxist thought where it's like some people wake up out of their biases and somehow mm -hmm. like join the disenfranchised group. Yeah. And somehow they're the enlightened, you know, group. Yeah. Yeah. And I think almost all outsiders see those people as on the grift themselves, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Serving their self-interest by even doing that little machination, you know. Yeah. So. To me, these are the two things that are just so negative, right? To, to go into, like, 
for me to like do ministry and be in the black community and to tell kids that it's all power struggle, you know, right. or to tell them that, you know, I can't trust, you know, none of us can trust our own, you know, mm -hmm. thoughts and reasons because it's all just selfishness disguised, right? Yeah. Christianity just has no traction in any of that because like it just kind of makes Christianity irrelevant and also makes their life irrelevant. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just, there's no, no good take home points there. So to me, like when black lives matter identifies with critical race theory, they're selling out to something that we can never get behind. Yeah. You know? And I want to point out something here. Anyone who like looks at this will see what a cool rhetorical device this is, right? Like part of the mind virus thing is that, this is like, it's hard to defeat anyone in an argument if they think this way. And they always sound like yeah. they know better and they're being more reasonable because they know that reason's corrupt and they know that yeah. that groups and resources are what really determine history. And you're naive because you think, you know, a great person had an influence or a hero had an influence, right? But this very thing that this rhetoric works, this is where I first heard of this. I heard about this in the debate world in the 90s, Right. Like a lot of people will say critical race theory originated in law schools in the 70s. It's been widespread for a long time. In the 90s, we were literally talking about it in debate because it's such an awesome rhetorical tool. Mm -hmm. Right. And in the 90s, I remember, I think it was called, they would call it a critique. You'd go into a debate round and say, let's not talk about debate at all. Let's talk about debate as a subject. Why aren't there more blacks here? Right. Yeah. And, then black debaters took this, and I think Louisville was who became famous for this. University of Louisville oh, yeah. started using it, and then I think some of those guys from Louisville transferred. But Emporia State ended up winning, even though they were doing this all the way in the nineties. They mm. ended up winning the national championship in college debate. Both na there's two national championships. They unified, I think, the championship for the first time using critical race theory which I think allowed them to not debate the topic every wow. single year. They could argue all the same arguments because they didn't even yeah. have to address the topic that was chosen. I don't know. I hope for some people that like makes their mind wake up that this is like <laughs> an awesome rhetorical tool, but like the debate world also like had this like anticlimactic moment. Cause it was like, if these guys are right now, what, like, do we just quit yeah. debating? Right. Or right. do we just spend yeah. all our time worried about minority involvement in debate? Or do we go back to talking about global warming again? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's just kind of such a funny thing. Yeah. And I think it's like even um, bringing up um, some of the issues that we brought up at the beginning about like police violence and like schools. It's like people say like, well, you're just deflecting, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that um, when you and I were first talking about this, like right in the middle of when the riots, you know, and the protests were starting and things like this, Black Lives Matter there's almost never been a truer statement. Yeah. And that statement needs said, I, I'm not saying it anymore because I don't like the group that co-opted it, Yeah, you know, but it matters. I think because of street violence, I think it matters yeah. because of the family. I think it matters because of education in the city yeah. that no one wants to touch because there's so yeah. much corruption there, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I don't know what to say beyond that, you know? And I think the black community is smarter than this. Yeah. Like this is a problem coming out of academia, not a problem coming out of the urban core. Before we moved here to Hyattsville, like I never saw any Black Lives Matter signs in my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> that was like almost all black except for our family. That's you know? true in, the, yeah. in our city too. Yeah. yeah. It's the liberal yeah. white neighborhoods that have the Black Lives Matter signs, not the, um, yeah. the yeah. black inner city neighborhoods.
anyway yeah all right well laura good to talk to you good to talk um, to you i want to encourage everyone to like share our videos and um let us know uh ben has a new project where he's releasing some clips from our videos mm, um, saw that. so if you're watching our whole videos or listening you don't need to worry about those clips because you've heard them all but anyway yeah um <laughs> peace with everybody and uh talk to you soon all right bye clark